a number of times overlapping with us over the years as of our fellows down in uh, their learning in Massachusetts. Um, the uh, presentation today is entitled Vaccine Conundrums and Seamless Management in HIV-Infected Patients. Um, uh, Dr. Sue uh, currently is, and since 2007, I think, 2008, has been the medical director of the Division of STD Prevention and HIV-AIDS Surveillance the Mass Department of Public Health, also an associate professor of pediatrics and trained in pediatric infectious disease uh, at BU School of Medicine. Um, the uh, speaker has nothing to disclose pertinent to today's presentation. Uh, and for people who are claiming uh, credit for uh, attendance, you have to be here for at least 80% of the program to receive credit. Uh, finally, the planning committee member, Brian Marsh, me, uh, has been a consultant for Gilead Biosciences, uh, but the planning committee member has had his conflict resolved by altering his control over the content of products or services of commercial interest, i.e., I have no control. Um, I think that's all I have to announce. Uh, continuing ed. Continuing ed number, thank you. It looks like 2IEY. Yes, so you want to register or do it on your cell phone. No, sorry. Uh, have you gone there yet? Search? I think I've gotten it uh, for technology. Yeah. We have to, all of our CME yeah. now is all sort of electronically registered. Okay, so I, I think that's uh, all I have to announce. So thank you again for coming up here and we look forward to the talk. All right, thanks so much for the invitation. Um, it's good to see some of you in the room again. And uh, for others of you in the room, you're probably wondering why a pediatrician is standing in front of an internal medicine HIV group. It's a logical question to have. I'll just mention that I actually did a secondary STD prevention fellowship. It was more oriented on public health. And that was when my career took a left turn into the dark side of STDs <laughs> and infectious diseases. And the rest is sort of history. Um, during that time when I was starting my MPH and focusing more on um, the population strategies we might use to try to prevent cases rather than treating them individually, you know, um, it occurred to me that it would be really awful if I didn't become also a clinical expert in this arena. And so I did a lot of extra time in the emergency rooms and the adolescent center at my institution, which is actually where I clinically do my practice. So on Thursday, oh, Wednesday afternoons, I still see kids in the adolescent center. And we have been seeing a few breakthrough cases in the under 21 age group, even for syphilis, and sometimes syphilis HIV co-management. So um, without further ado, uh, let's dive into some of what I call the vexing conundrums in the management of syphilis in HIV-infected patients. As um, Brian mentioned, I don't have any disclosures. I am a loyal state servant. Um, however, uh, we will be discussing some off-label uses, both of non-penicillin antibiotics. Penicillin, it turns out, is the only FDA-approved drug, I believe, for the treatment of syphilis. So anytime we talk about something other than penicillin, we will be going off FDA. 
Um, the second thing that I will mention at the very end, even though today's talk is focused on syphilis, it would be hard to miss the fact that in your patient cohorts you're seeing many co-infected individuals. So we're going to just touch upon um, some of the strategies related to STI screening, and I hope to ruin your image of ice cream forever and anon. We'll see why in a little bit. All right, so um, <clears throat> let's start with discussing just a few shifts in syphilis HIV epidemiology. I will not torture you excessively with the epidemiologic changes because I feel pretty certain. Uh, if I ask for a show of hands, are you seeing more cases of syphilis in 2016 than you were in 2010, 2011? The answer is yes. It's just um, obvious in every data set we've looked at. And this was true probably starting uh, actually from the about early 2000s, the signals started happening, to be honest, particularly in uh, men who have sex with men. That epidemic continues to go on and actually uh, gain even further um, converts, I guess, to uh, having repeat infections with syphilis. That's the new problem from doing more in 2016. We're going to review some elements of the clinical presentation of syphilis in HIV in particular. Um, we're going to talk through some testing paradigms. And here we're just going to walk through one that's most relevant for you here at this medical center. You guys can tell me if you use different initial screening assays, and we'll touch upon those assays. And under that, um, you know, it, I, I am mentioning the reverse, what's called the reverse algorithm screening, when you don't start with the RPR first. Um, I am going to touch upon another testing paradigm, or vexing conundrum, really, about when to LP, and I'll review a little bit about when to LP. And that's that classic question we often get as ID consultants. I will also do um, some highlights related to ocular syphilis, which is a subset of neurosyphilis. But I want to touch upon that because of the recent case reports in the MMWRs near you. Um, we should also summarize the evidence-based treatment approaches such as they are, such as we know them. Um, the penicillin data are the primary data we're going to point to. And there is one particular paper I'm going to draw your attention to that came out within the last five years. It was by Gonison et al. And it was in a military cohort. It was going to shed more light, and it's more up-to-date than some of the other papers that are in my data set that I have as my evidence review today. There are some non-penicillin alternatives to treating syphilis and HIV co-infected patients, which becomes incredibly important because, as you know, many of your patients have allergies to penicillin, and it isn't always sensible to desensitize them and then bring them into the hospital and do the, um, everything that you have to do there. Uh, I hope to give you a couple of alternatives to think through, but at the end of the day, penicillin is, in fact, a tried and true. In terms of follow-up, um, what constitutes an adequate serologic decline in an HIV-infected individual, especially an HIV-infected individual who is on his fifth syphilis primary secondary attack? Um, one wonders, in 2016, what we really understand of the serologic titers. Um, and I'll point to a little bit related to what we understand now. And I think there are open questions about interventions for syphilis HIV co-infected individuals, especially the people who are coming repeatedly infected and <clears throat> basically coming in for their shot of vitamin B. That's what it's called on the street, although it doesn't have very much street value, penicillin, vitamin bicillin. Um, and there are a few words on STI screening and MSM. 
I guess we could also touch upon shortage issues that is also relevant to bicillin. Um, in particular, there was a, a shortage over the summer, or I should say micro shortages in certain areas. So if that's relevant to you guys, I'll, I'll go back and forth. Okay. So let's start with the epi. This is a screenshot of a graphic that's in the STD surveillance brochure that's put out by the STD uh, division of CDC every year. Comes out actually around this time of year, actually maybe two months later, and it talks to the year before because there's such a lag in the cleanup of the data. And this is actually a special data set. It's not the nation's worth of data, but rather um, 10 jurisdictions that participate in special STD surveillance. And Massachusetts is back in that fold as of a couple of years ago. We're not on the 2014 screenshot, though. So <laughs> I don't have any more local data to uh, New Hampshire than New York City, which is arguably a very different kettle of fish. However, I think the take-home point here is that when MSM go to STD clinics for their clinical care, Pretty much in every cohort and in state jurisdictional data, New Hampshire is no different, Massachusetts is no different, approximately 40 to 50% of individuals diagnosed with primary, secondary, and early latent, i.e. transmissible infectious syphilis, are actually HIV co-infected. This we know through fairly accurate interviewing techniques. We still struggle as public health departments to interview every single case of infectious syphilis. 90-day incubation, we feel like if we could but trace all those contacts, we have 90 days to do some good. Treat the contacts, maybe we'll stem the epidemic. Hasn't been shown to be true in the last decade. Nonetheless, we keep trying. Okay. There is an anomaly on the slide. Most of you can see that LA is a little different. Yeah, well, that's only because next door to the STD clinic, Ryan has told me, the epi in LA, Ryan has told me there is their HIV clinic. And the HIV clinic actually takes care of the HIV and syphilis co-infected patients, which are mostly babies. That's the only reason it's that. In, an, in a population data set, you should think, oh, gee, a little under half of my primary, secondary, and early latent syphilis cases are going to be HIV co-infected. Another point about the epi is that we actually do know some data about population health here. So this is a number probably many of you have not seen, yet the patients have repeatedly asked you, or in some sense, it's, it's along the lines of, Doc, if I have sex tomorrow with somebody who has gonorrhea, what are my odds of contracting gonorrhea, right? And it's, you know, you go through your song and dance about how it's really difficult to explain, and everybody has a different risk interpretation, and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, there are some really interesting numbers for the numbers of new HIV diagnoses being made in a denominator of just MSM. So I suppose you could think about this as a marker of um, the sexual network of MSM, of what we know of how large that population is, and how healthy that population is, a marker of sexual health. And it depends on if you're a glass half full or a glass half empty person, to be honest. But I sometimes look at these numbers and I think, wow, you know, the new HIV diagnosis rate, when Dave Purcell and his colleagues at CDC examined this, and they finally published it in 2012, but it was based on 2008 numerator data, case numerator data flooding CDC for HIV, okay, or for syphilis. So they used the 2008 
numerator, the question on everybody's mind is, how do we derive an MSM population denominator? And they didn't do anything really fancy. You know what they did? They basically took the behavioral surveys that tell us in every data set. You know, you ask a bunch of men, have they had sex with same-sex individuals, in, other men, in the last three to six months? And in adult populations, actually, if they're having sex, I should subset that further, it is about three to four percent of men. So if you go back to just your internal medicine colleagues and you were thinking about internal medicine grand rounds, and you were thinking about people who should be picked up for extra special screening tactics, you know, ask a hundred men, four of them should be gay men, and then you have to subset them as to their risk. Not every gay man takes risks to the same degree as the ones who repeatedly have sexual reinfections, STI reinfections, like the syphilitics that we're going to be talking about today. Okay? So when Dave Purcell did this, he arrived at a really interesting number. The HIV diagnosis rate was still less than 1% per 100,000 MSM. I'm not talking about population prevalence, I'm just talking about new infections. That was the diagnosis rate. That's the, I, I sometimes think rather optimistically about it. Actually, there are a ton of gay men who are quite healthy. Um, syphilis, same way, 154 per 100,000 MSM. The very glass half practically completely empty and very depressing numbers are that for men who have sex with men, their rates are on the order of 50 to 100 times more than the rates in other men if you look at HIV and syphilis new diagnoses, or uh, similarly about 50 to 100 times that of women, if you compare to women. And it speaks again, likely, to population health, sexual networks, and core transmitters and core dynamics. In, say, Boston, there's a core group of individuals who may be on the party circuit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or there may be people, right, we know from New Hampshire who travel down to Boston at times to have fun. Um, and it could be the other way, too. Um, I think the biggest push now that we understand um, really influencing the sexual partnership rate, of course, is the apps that our patients are using to find partners, things like uh, Tinder and Grindr. And it's very instructive to download Grindr to your phone. Um, to, to understand how gay men identify other partners. It's, you know, you don't go to the bar anymore with a certain color on a certain wrist or on a wristband or something subtle like that. No, no, you, you find your tribe. And you find your tribe, and if you like barebacking, you can find the person to bareback with. And not only that, Grinder will tell you, the free Grinder app will tell you the next 100 people who are in your tribe. And they don't limit by radius. I was under the impression that it was like only in the first 100 miles. No, no. It's the next 100 people that they give you on the free version of the app. So you can, you can make hookups pretty easily now in even smaller sexual networks where arguably in past <coughs> times it was much more difficult to find a partner that you would like to be with. Okay, a few last epi shots. We know that in general, and I'm sorry I'm going to use Massachusetts data for this round, although when I come back in, in about a month, I have to improve these slides with Lindsay Pierce for the New Hampshire Public Health Conference. Um, we'll be looking at the New Hampshire numbers. They're not that different. Your, your numbers of new diagnoses and deaths is, is speaking to one of the successes, right, in HIV care. They, those numbers of new diagnoses and deaths are going down, 
leading to larger numbers of people who are living healthy lives, we hope, except for when they get STIs like syphilis. Okay? And um, in Massachusetts, we've definitely seen changes in case rates. And we could spend a lot of time arguing or discussing or thinking about why is it that syphilis has gone up, but HIV has gone down. What are the drivers for both behaviors, the apps? What's changed in this decade versus previous decades? And it's not as simple as just the apps that I mentioned, for example. You could think much more deeply about the drivers for these sorts of things. Um, the last thing is that in almost every population data set, like a state jurisdictional data set, you'll find that um, if you try to divide your infectious syphilis cases within New Hampshire, your cases probably run in the hundreds, below, right, right around or to the left or right of 100 or so. Uh, on an annual basis in New Hampshire, because in uh, Massachusetts, I know with our population of 6.5 million as a denominator, we're running at close to 700 cases now. So you're running right, right around 100 infectious syphilis cases every year. The majority of them are still happening in MSN, which I suppose is some cause for rejoicing, because that means the crossover into other sexual networks, predominantly the heterosexual ones, and the signal that we usually see the pregnant women who get syphilis and then our concerns about congenital syphilis, that has not quite happened in the Northeast. There are other jurisdictions which have wrestled with congenital syphilis for a long time. Florida, Louisiana, California, Texas. A um, lot of reasons for that, a lot of drivers. But let's just say in New England, if your prenatal care system is good, you're likely going to be able to prevent the lion's share of congenital syphilis. Um, you may be diagnosing increasing numbers of cases in women of reproductive age uh, as we see the epidemic um, go out of just the men with sex with men cohort population. Um, we may see that, but the signal is yet to be fully realized. We're not hitting the emergency button either in New Hampshire or <coughs> Massachusetts yet. I'll give you one more piece of information. If I didn't give you enough epi data to say, wow, perk up, pay attention, this is going to become a bigger and bigger problem, okay? There's, there's no, no vaccine in sight for at least 20 more years. I just had a consultation at CDC a few months back, and it is clear, it is very clear the basic science research in syphilis lags, lags, lags. It's just, it's just so difficult. They are just at the beginnings of trying to identify the antigen epitopes that would be even appropriate. So um, no vaccine in sight, all right? So what, why else should you care about STIs and HIV? HIV is under control. In fact, one of the great debates was, well, gee, we can even prevent HIV with biomedical prevention interventions, right? PrEP. <coughs> okay, great. So STIs, we can treat them. Luckily, syphilis, still responsive to penicillin. Okay, so this is a good thing, but don't forget HIV transmission in this picture that um, Mike Cohen and Pilcher published actually back in 2005, but I still use it as an illustration. Remember, we always think of acute HIV as highly transmissible, right, that stage. If the person is feeling good enough to have sex, they have a ton of virus, they're shedding virus, they'll transmit more effectively, more efficiently. But we have treatment as prevention now, right? And many of your patients, the most of your patients, in the treatment cascade are actually viral load suppressed in the serum. But the problem is with every STI episode, we are pretty sure they shed and break through again. 
Um, syphilis might be a little different than GC or chlamydia. You could argue me into different levels of shedding of HIV. But it is in a hidden compartment that isn't completely treated. It will pop out. If you have a co-urethritis, and these uh, were best shown in African data, um, I think it's Malawi co uh, subset, and this is, this is much older data now. But if you have urethritis at the same time that you have your HIV, you're going to shed that much more HIV, and you're going to be transmissible again. So if you want to think of it through your HIV lens, yes, it is very important to control STIs um, with HIV as well. Is that profile true even under conditions where a patient Total. is taking PrEP? Yep. Oh, PrEP, PrEP. Oh, well, that PrEP, you mean, uh, oh, right. So on the other end, they're blocking. They don't have HIV yet. Well, or let's say, just say that any antiretrovirals. Yes, that I'm profile sure. profile is in the treatment group? Yeah. Well, they would be treated they wouldn't be shedding virus, so there's not really that equivalent, but I'd have to think about whether or not they'd be more susceptible to acquisition. And my guess is absolutely, yes. Uh, you get a syphilitic chancre. I mean, how could you not, right? Uh, at that site, which can be quite painless in the rectum, if you have unprotected anal intercourse, um, I actually have data to show you later that if you have an event like um, rectal chlamydia or GC, you break through, or you have um, the chancre, you, in that five-year time event horizon, your risk for acquisition of HIV is much higher. So the question is, if you have it and you're on Truvada, how likely are you to acquire? And I think the data are not perfect. I think if you're really great at taking Truvada, you're actually still going to be pretty protected. Really great. But like that adherence is key concept is going to be crucial. Not everybody's perfect. All right, but anyway, for your HIV co-infected patient, definitely the blood um, or serum viral load is not the same as semen viral load. I probably should have phrased it that way. I'll change that. Okay, so let's review a little bit about syphilis through the HIV lens in your HIV co-infected patients. So this is what we used to think of, right? You think of this nice progression, primary, chancre, uh, spirochetes uh, replicating at the, just the mucosal level. Then secondary, the spirochetes disseminate through the bloodstream primarily. They, you get um, dissemination through the vasculature, but then not only through the vasculature, you affect the vasculature. A few of you have probably even seen maybe an aortitis case now in a 30-some-odd-year person. Uh, a couple of those were presented at ID Week last year. Um, and we're seeing more 30-some-olds with aortitis, something that has really, we had not seen in several decades. So anyway, uh, that's more tertiary, but nonetheless, it's disseminating through the vasculature. And I just remind you about the aortitis, the aorta being the largest element of the vasculature at times. Um, there are secondary lesions, though, that we all are trained to look out for. The skin rash, which can be very pleomorphic. It can be macular, it can be macular papular, it can be scaly, it can be itchy, it might not be itchy. But the palms and soles are somewhat more of a giveaway than compared to fungal infections or other things that your HIV co-infected patient can There's alopecia. Um, it's not just thyroid disease that results in loss of the lateral third of the eyebrows. That happens occasionally in some of our patients. And of course, classic alopecia, more classic alopecia on uh, the head that you can identify. 
Um, generalized limb flan swelling and flu-like symptoms and all sorts of systemic manifestations, a good case of hepatitis and syphilis, uh, syphilis um, affecting the liver significantly enough that the transaminases rose quite a bit um, in a particular patient who happened to be HIV cohort uh, uninfected. Um, but nonetheless, that was just presented at the SD prevention conference two weeks ago. Latent cases. By then, the, tr the battle between the spirochetes and the human immune system, the human immune system has temporarily won out. And there are no signs and symptoms, but the serology is still, in fact, positive. Early latent is epidemiologically defined as you somehow figured out that your patient's last sexual contact was a year ago, and so could, uh, I'm sorry, that, that they acquired the disease in the last year. Somehow you knew this with your patient. Late latent is acquired greater than a year prior to testing, and of course there are many unknown duration cases where you have a serology that's positive, a patient that you feel is quite asymptomatic, although I would argue it depends on your clinical acumen and how much you want to drive yourself crazy looking for particular symptoms. Um, but the thing to avoid at all costs is you want to get the treatment in so that you never get the heart and blood vessel, eye and brain involvement that can occur sometimes in secondary phase, but definitely in tertiary when the things become calcific and it's a little too late and it's not clear to us that treatment at that stage reverses symptomatology. Not clear to us for all those workups that you're doing in elderly gentlemen and women um, who have uh, uh, dementia. It's not clear that treatment with penicillin at that stage reverses. You guys could probably speak to that better than I could. So the interesting thing is that CNS invasion, it's just a reminder, can occur at any stage in this process from really primary onwards, once the spirochetes get disseminated. And what was always known to be true in this bacterial infection, super infection on top of HIV, if you did not control your HIV well, you had many odd manifestations, more severe manifestations, multiple deep ulcers, simultaneous primary and secondary flipbacks, so somebody will get the whole body rash, but in some places they'll develop chancres in those rash sites. Um, Louis Maligna, neurologic involvement, again, occurring at any stage, and it was mostly described really in the 80s literature and some of the 90s literature in HIV-infected persons with advanced immunosuppression. We don't tend to see those presentations anymore as uncontrolled. So these are just some screenshots, a reminder where, how it can look, um, the classic one on the penis. But I'll point out there are non-classic manifestations. Are these really, I mean, would you have picked them out as ulcers per se? There's someone healing. And there are actually multiple ones on this gentleman. So there are probably multiple sites of inoculation that's possible, but there can be multiple. Um, the lip, so it doesn't just have to be on the pink parts. Any breakthrough where the shanker can occur, that, that can happen. Um, the tongue. And the posterior oropharynx, posterior oropharynx is a great place to look for this, where one might just let your mind go free with the act of oral sex and what rubs on what, and then you can kind of think about like where you need to examine more closely. Um, so those are just some of the shots, and certainly rectal lesions have been described as well. Just a few screenshots of secondary syphilis. The rash can look like very pleomorphic. The condyloma lata um, are wetter than your standard uh, condylomata. Um, they are highly infectious. Um, if you squish them and they have a wet 
type of feel to them. You can actually get them on a glass slide, and I, I don't think, your fellows have been telling me that you don't have a dark field microscope here, that nobody's really trained to look at that. But some of you may work abroad, and you may uh, want to refurbish your dark field skills. We actually um, do have a video, and we do teach and train still to that. So I keep thinking that maybe abroad you may want to brush up on the skills. But if you were to swipe those, um, rub them a little bit, and then try to get the secretions of the condylomalata onto a glass slide, you could do dark field on them, and they would be teeming with spirochetes. And the Palmer and Planter brush. Okay. So here's the natural history again. But this time I laid it out with very rough timelines. Incubation period, three to four weeks. But the range is three to 90 days. That 90 days still sticks in my head. Primary phase, two to six weeks, but it could be ranging one to 12 weeks. After the lesions disappear, secondary, by the way, can be up to a year's worth of 70. Um, yeah, up to a year for secondary, but latent, um, oh, I'm sorry, secondary can be anywhere between two to eight weeks of time, all the way up to a year is sort of the outer limit. And then 30% of untreated individuals uh, probably progress on to tertiary symptoms. And unfortunately, we know these data from those terrible cohorts, which were not ethically followed, but we know it's 30%. So this is an incredible progression rate. So we really do want to arrest um, this process when we know penicillin will have the most. OK. Uh, there they are. There's a screenshot of them. It's getting fuzzier with time. Um, definitive methods include dark field and actually seeing the spirochete. Um, or a DFA test of the lesion exudate or tissue. Um, but what most of us do, honestly, is we do presumptive diagnosis. We do two types of serologic tests, and we marry them together, and we try to interpret the data. Okay? Um, they are called non-treponemal and treponemal tests. So um, normally I do this with the ARS, but today we'll just do a show of hands. It's just somebody told me, do you use the RPR, or do you use a TREPCHEC, TREPSURE, enzyme immunoassay now as the first screen? Yeah, ELISA. You're doing ELISA. 96 wells, boom, your lab is done, and then they move on, and they reflex to an RPR. Okay, good, 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 good. All right. Um, these are the non-treponemal serologies of the world are the VDRL and the RPR. Still very useful. They are nothing more and nothing less than an antibody to cardiolipin, lecithin, and cholesterol antigen. This is not specific to T. pallidum. I like to think of this as two reasons that your RPR or VDRL goes positive um, when you have highly infectious, teeming with spiroketal burden state. It's not only that the treponeme has a cloak that mimics some of these antigens, but it's also, and therefore sometimes triggers some of these antigens, it hides this way, but it's also that as it drills through the vasculature, I can almost imagine it injuring various parts of the vasculature, kind of like your IBDU patients, talc flecking off, and have you ever noticed that for those IVDU patients, there are case reports where their RPR or VDRL goes up, and it's not necessarily syphilis. It's actually uh, related to um, antibody to cardiolipin, lecithin, and cholesterol being generated. Okay. This is really useful as a measure of infectiousness, burden of treponemes. Okay. And we like to watch it go down in response to our therapies. It's the most beautiful response, in addition to watching the condyloma lata melt away or the primary chancre just heal over the course of a week, 10 days. It's really lovely to treat, actually, and follow up to see that response. Treponemal assays, on the other hand, are, are more organism-specific assays. 
And these organism-specific assays are qualitative. Either you have the antibody or you don't. And one time in your life, if you've met up with Trepanuma pallidum, subspecies pallidum, you should become positive and you should pretty much stay positive for the rest of your life. Okay? But you need it at least once in your life to be tested. The best graphic summarizing the titers, rise and fall off, IgM, although none of us order IgM tests um, commercially, they're not helpful commercially. Um, the, the IgM rise and fall, the number of years, is still Rosanna Peeling's graphic from the Bulletin of the World Health Organization. This is this one. Uh, by the way, I'll send the slides to all of you as PDFs later. You can have them. <coughs> so the reference is the Bulletin Health of, of the World Health Organization from 2004. And here it is. Time of infection is on the x-axis. Number of patients with tests who are positive. Uh, again, speaking to the fact that tests are not perfect. Usually it's not 100%. Um, time post-infection for development of IgM and then fade off, probably within two years it'll go to nil, but it takes a little while even for IgM to develop a few weeks, right? The VDRLs and RPRs, treated individuals, we hope it will fade to nil. Untreated individuals, it often will go to nil anyway in 40% of patients, unfortunately, or fortunately. They may not be the ones who wind up with the tertiary complications. Um, but some of the tertiary complicated patients, uh, the aortitis, et cetera, the RPR and VDRL can in fact be negative, or the dementia patients work up. Which is why at that stage of the disease, if you're thinking 10, 20 years out, most of us for that type of workup for tertiary syphilis will order the test that you're getting as a first screen now anyway, the treponemal assay as one of the screening tests for syphilis. You don't just want to do an RPR and only do the treponemal assay if it's positive at that stage, 10 to 20 years out. Because at that stage, the only syphilis antibody that may be positive is your FTA absorbed or your TBPA, uh, or your TREPCHEC, TREPSURE, ELISA type um, test. Okay, quick review before we dive into a little bit of the TREPCHEC, TREPSURE, EIA type tests. There are many causes for false positive syphilis testing, and t syphilis testing is still distal you're not finding the organism. You still need rabbit testicles to culture Treponema pallidum, subspecies pallidum. We're not running around culturing this. We're not doing direct tests of the organism yet. PCR is still um, in the hands of developers. Uh, not a lot of people think there's a lot of money to be made in syphilis diagnostics. So it's hard, hard to get hold of these improvements. So false positive syphilis testing, non-treponema tests, a bunch of things can cause um, a, a reaction to cardiolipin, lecithin, and cholesterol. Really, think of it that way, right? Viral infections can do it. Uh, lymphoma, TB, malaria, actually. Uh, endocarditis, connective tissue disease, pregnancy itself, low titers sometimes. Uh, and abuse of injection drugs, particularly with talc when it was used to cut um, some of the heroin in older literature. Trevenemal tests. There are a number of other spirochetal illnesses that can cross-react, even with the treponemal tests. And I just wanted you to be aware that includes Lyme, which is kind of important in New England. Uh, leptospirosis, rapid fever, relapsing fever, yaws, and pinta in some of our immigrant populations. But of note, there's an oddity in the VDRL. I had a chance to ask a Lyme specialist, and he actually agreed about this. Uh, VDRL is actually non-reactive in Lyme, and it has to do with the way the test is made. So um, you can counter-check certain things. 
If you think it's just Lyme, before you go to blame, just Lyme, try to get a hold of a BDRL as opposed to an RPR. It's um, very interesting. Okay, new dawn in syphilis testing. All these new fangled assays. Not all of these that Arlene Sainer reviewed in her 2010 article, okay, not all of these are available in the US market. You're probably using the Trinity assay here in your lab. This just a guess. I think okay. we're using Captia. Captia, yes. Yes, it's, it's made by Trinity Biotech, I believe. I believe. Um, the traditional was you'd go from the RD, RPR, you'd do that first, and then you'd flip to the treponemal test if the RPR was positive. That had the good sense of capturing your most infectious population. Okay? But you know what? It's a new age. And basically, labs drove this. Um, these assays were first developed for screening large volumes of blood in blood banks. It would make sense that on a 96-well plate, you can do a lot, of, lot more, a lot quickly, and have less exposure to a tech, right? Safety reasons here. Then if you're sitting around pipetting your RPR and looking at the flocculation, um, the, the initial part does, isn't done that way, but when you titer it out, it is still done on a card. We don't have an automated system for doing this yet. Okay, so that's what drove it. But it was sort of like the tail wagging the dog, depending on if you're, I suppose, having a laboratory perspective. Are there any laboratorians in the room? Versus a clinician perspective. Um, uh, most clinicians just got socked with this, and they were kind of like, what? What is going on? And then they had to reinterpret. And just in light of all of this, the CDC had to write a w, uh, MMWR and help us with the interpretation. They utilized these uh, new, newer generation tests, the EIAs, in a Kaiser Permanente relatively low risk Northern California data set of patients getting screened for syphilis. And they also used it in the New York City STD clinics, um, just for a comparison. And from this, they derived this MMWR, and they basically said the following. The conundrum we're wrestling with now, testing conundrum we're wrestling with, right, is before now, we would never have known of the person, typically, who has a positive TPPA or TPEIA enzyme immunoassay and a negative RPR. What do you do with that person? What does that mean? What's the meaning of that, right? And so the percentages, there's, there's actually not an insignificant proportion of your patients that are false positive, probably. That's the bottom line. But it all goes back to pretest probability. You have a young gay man who has told you that he engages in risky sex or has multiple partners. You know, you better believe that your interpretation of that positive EIA with a negative RPR might be, oh gee, it's too soon for the RPR to be positive. And if I look really hard, I can find a primary shanker right at his anal verge. So I'm going to treat him today. I'm going to treat him today, even though I don't have a positive RPR yet. The RPR takes a little while. Glad we need to wait for that secondary phase, right? but you can presumptively treat that individual. And many of you who are older in the room remember doing that when you saw Mark Lichter. So there's no, I mean, it's, it, you know, we've gotten over the phase where we're like, which algorithm is better? Well, it's the algorithm you're using. So interpret it the best you can and um, go from there. Anybody have any questions from that? I mean, it's been a while since you've switched it. So. People are finally used to it. But remember the beginning. What is this test? What's going on? Um, and there are some newer data telling us that if the enzyme immunoassay, which is supposed to be used just qualitatively, yes, no, if the, the um, units that they measure it by for positivity are relatively low and close to the cutoff, of course, 
it's possible that it's a false positive, more possible than if it was not so close to the cut point of the manufacturer. That was Ina Park's data that came out in 2011 in JID. There are still a lot of unanswered questions, particularly in the HIV-infected population. Um, it turns out that uh, in HIV-infected populations, we don't quite know the meaning of the test. And at the STD Prevention Conference, Alan Katz from Hawaii published uh, three anecdotal case reports of individuals with HIV co-infection. One or two of them were controlled on HIV uh, heart. Some one was not. Um, but be that as it may, they had negative EIAs and actually um, very positive RPRs and later flagged positive on a TPPA also. So the TPPA is the gold standard assay, but it's harder to do and harder to get a hold of and not as cheap as a TPEIA at this point. But if you ever have that serodiscordance, you get that TPPA because that is the time when it can be your tiebreaker test and be useful. Okay, ready for our next conundrum? Who do you recommend LP for? All right, who wants to confess? Do you do it with those with neurologic symptoms, ophthalmic symptoms, those with the less than or equal to 350 and the greater than or equal to 1 to 32 RPR? You still do that? No, I was going to vote at the end of your. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was, we don't have to, to it's not to be anonymized, but we're we're going to keep this in the room. This management. Okay. So who goes with symptoms? You gotta have symptoms. And then you're gonna LP. Pretty much all of us would LP if there's something we would offer, we would recommend LP. Now the patient may refuse, and this may be quite difficult in 2016. Nonetheless, we would recommend it, right? Neurologic, ophthalmic, uh, anything neuro, we, we go for it. We're gonna check the CNS before we treat because then we might have other things to follow following treatment. We wanna make sure there's CNS response. Okay, asymptomatic patient, who's in the Christina Mara camp? CD4 less than or equal to 350, RPR greater than or equal to 1 to 32. Okay, along with bring it on. Two. What's the <laughs> argument here? No, asymptomatic. Asymptomatic though. No, I'm just saying along with 1 and 2. Oh, along I with, oh, they have no symptoms. for number five. Answer five. Is <laughs> oh, five, five, one, two, and three. Yeah. Well, yes, yes. You mean there's some of you who are not LPing patients who are heart, and like have whopping CD4s, well controlled, and you don't LP them, even though they have neuro-opto symptoms? Wow. No. No. no, they, no. Okay. No, okay. Okay. You're still going to LP. Okay. And that I hadn't heard yet, so I didn't put that out. Response option. But yet. three without one and two. Yeah, three without one and two. That's what I'm wondering. No, you're not doing it. Yes. 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 We, some people do three without one and two. Okay. Christina Mara and Khalil Ghanem continue to argue about this. The bottom line is that in no cohort has it ever been demonstrated that it's made a difference in their long-term outcomes. But you're correct. More of those individuals who don't have their HIV is well-controlled <laughs> and their RPR is higher have a higher likelihood of CNS involvement. But we always expect a few bacteria to break through, frankly. It's a question of how good your immune system is at controlling it and how nervous you are about it. And most of us ID clinicians, many of us will fall in Christina Mars' camp. I think another factor to consider is how close follow-up that patient has. Yes. This is one of my controlled HIV patients or somebody at least I'm seeing frequently. I'm much more likely just to follow the serology than if I, I think okay. that they uh, might not come back. Okay. Well, or, or if you're going to treat them anyway, uh -huh. I suppose that's, I mean, that's usually the kind of room we uh, have. Uh, 
But the argument should be there that you are going to treat them anyway, but you should be following some CNS parameters. So, so let's take a closer look at the CNS parameters. I know it's difficult to get an LP now, and it's, it's getting harder and harder, right? It's got to be just like in pediatrics, the number of times I can actually get a resident to do a proper LP is, 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 is starting to become small. Okay, so this is the data that Christina Mara and Khalil Ghanem like to argue about. It's basically Christina's study. So the indications, as they're written about in the SU Treatment Guideline, as Kim Warkowski tried to play referee in this argument, was basically you just LP anybody with neurologic symptoms, which is inclusive of ophthalmologic syphilis. So do a really good slit lamp exam to find out if they have even a touch of uveitis, uh, neuroretinitis or optic neuritis, and try to rule that out. Um, before you declare them, oh, no symptoms. However, um, another indication for LP is still a lack of a fourfold decline in a nonspecific treponemal test by 6 to 12 months after treatment for primary, secondary, early latent, or 12 to 24 months, two years after treatment for late latent. I don't know a lot of clinicians who can wait and bite their nails for that long, but you have it out all the way to figure <coughs> out to watch that fourfold decline happen or not happen. And in HIV co-infected patients, arguably, we've all seen their titers do funny things. Of course, it's then confused on top of, like, do they get reinfected? But that's the complex issues for 2016. Um, the data are really poor that drove this recommendation. I just point out that in 13 HIV-infected individuals without a fourfold decline following median if they were followed more than a year plus out. Four of them had CSF abnormalities consistent with asymptomatic neurosyphilis. Thus, it's this recommendation to tap those who don't look like they've had that fourfold serologic serum decline. Look in their CNS for a pocket, maybe. But the data are really poor, and Khalil owns up to this. Titers may decline more slowly in HIV-infected, so do you want to give them 12 months, 24 months, if they follow up really closely? If you're accurately following them up, they're good at coming back to see you. Um, all right. And again, uh, Christina Mara's data, JID, and uh, also back in 2007, two out of three studies included those with neurologic symptoms who already warranted LP in those who had that less than or equal to 350 CD4 count and the greater than 1 to 32 RPR. It did increase the likelihood of identifying CNS abnormalities on the TAP, the LP. Uh, protein, white cell count, and sometimes the VDRL that was CSF VDRL positive. But nonetheless, the outcomes didn't change. The clinical outcomes didn't change, and the good follow-up, there was good follow-up about a year out for clinical outcomes. All right, 2016. Now for about two years running, we've had more worries about ocular. Have any of you gotten co-consulted? You're seeing it, right? Are you hearing about it a little bit more? Not sure. Compared more to syphilis, so we're more, more syphilis, ocular. so more ocular. That's been the read. So it was 2014, in December, January, February, that the alerts started coming out in the public health network that um, King County, <laughs> Seattle, King County, of course, they're always on the lookout for STDs, as well as the West Coast, had more of a signal than usual of run on ocular syphilis cases. Some of those cases actually were really awful. Anecdotally, there were cases of um, public health department field epidemiologists going out and trying to contact trace a secondary syphilis contact. Couldn't find the person, couldn't find the person, and it turned out the person was 
going, trying to get their seeing eye dog because they had undiagnosed ocular syphilis. Mm. So um, I think it became very concerning. There were a handful of cases that happened all at once between December and January in Seattle, King County's database, and they felt like it warranted a public health alert. Since then, every jurisdiction has gone back and faithfully looked, and we have yet to determine specifically that if you have an ocular syphilis case, should you case contact trace more closely around them because they have a strain that has ocular tropism. That's not been clear. <clears throat> CDC is still hot on that trail. The one message I have for all of you is, wow, can you get the ophthalmologist to work with you and if they tap the vitreous or they tap uh, the humors of the eye, please get that sample to Alan Play at CDC. There's a website that's on this subject. They want the pre-penicillin pre treatment sample because they want to know, is there an ocular tropic strain in town? And they're still working on that. But our best guess is we haven't detected much of that. Every time we try to contact trace, we're still contact tracing really more quickly on the ocular and neurosyphilitic cases if they're in secondary phase um, because we were worried that there might be an ocular or neurotropic strain. Um, certainly warrants a call to the public health department to help facilitate this. And it's not hard to do. The CDC website has it. And so, of course, they made all sorts of terrible puns to try to get this news out, uh, being blinded by syphilis, et cetera. And uh, just a reminder that the symptoms that you can use to screen your patients, and some of them may not come forward with these symptoms, oddly enough. I, I guess they have way too much other things to worry about in their life. But just simple redness, even that, in the context of secondary syphilis, would prompt me to want to try to get a much better eye exam. Uh, eye pain, floaters, flashing lights, visual acuity loss, and the, the worst would be blindness or actual visual loss. Are there any leading hypotheses as to the biology of possible ocular treatment? Uh, yes. So Christina Mara in her lab actually had a few strains. Let me see if I kept um, some of the data. Uh, I don't remember. Here it is. Um, T pallidum DNA that she had in her lab. Uh, there was a certain mutation. Not clear to me. Sorry. Um, and it's like an N of 42 patients with one strain type. And that did seem to predominate in, in that. But I think it's very hard to come by these strains to do the proper studies. Although it's arguably becoming easier. Um, and then what she did was she used those strains and she inoculated those rabbits again. So they had a greatest degree of their own vision. Those rabbits who are our culture media for syphilis. Okay, so the possibility exists. We're gonna continue on the public health aspect to act as if it is, but we actually need more study. <clears throat> So here's the, you, you need a lot of freezer space to do this. Well, not a lot of freezer space, but um, you're trying to get it to CDC at this point. And actually, it's not Sarah Oliver anymore, it's Alan Pillay, but that's on the CDC website. So if you type in CDC, ocular syphilis, you get straight to that website. Or you can email me if you have any trouble. All right, lack of clarity, whether this represents an outbreak of more neuroocular tropic strain versus not versus an increasing awareness of known complications of syphilis in the setting of a rising number of secondary syphilis cases. Okay, so we always knew that it was about one to 3% of secondary syphilis would have obvious neuroocular symptoms, like um, uh, CNS meningitis, meningovasculitis, that kind of thing, and as well as ocular symptoms. 
So the more cases we see of secondary, the more we're going to see of the complications. So point exactly. Okay. I'm now done with the diagnostic conundrums. We've solved it all. Not really, but okay. We're going to try to treat them. Okay. We have an MSM well-controlled on art. He's young. He has the rash of a secondary syphilis. I'm going to give you the fact that he does not have neuroocular syphilis. <clears throat> Are you going to give him one dose, three doses, or something other? Who's going to go for one dose? I have to ask how long he's had syphilis. Okay, it's short. He acquired it recently. He's only 18. <coughs> one dose. You're going to go with one. One dose. One dose, people. Okay. Anybody going for three doses still? Just secondary syphilis. Recently acquired, a couple of months ago. Okay, good. Are we? Is this because of the shortage that we suddenly become more parsimonious? <laughs> because when you no, survey, no, because what the guidelines say. That is true. That's true. But but do I do all clinicians follow the guidelines? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, but but in full disclosure, I mean, let's think about uh, ID clinicians, where we're amongst the most careful people, most conservative, and many of our colleagues have been known to treat for longer for three doses. Okay. We stick with the guidelines, it should be one dose. We're also trying to save benzathine penicillin for the many now that are acquiring this. Um, I just want to mention here that there is a new app in town, so you can actually download an app with the SD treatment guidelines. I use it for the herpes um, regimens, the drug treatment regimens that I never have memorized. Um, so there, there are many reasons to download the app, let alone the fact that should heaven forfend multi-drug resistant gonorrhea come to our shores and become more of a problem, they're going to push alert you, right? Just like many apps ask you to update them when the, the, the maker app wants you to update. This is much better than your static SD treatment guidelines laminated sheet that we make as a training center. Granted, we still make them. People love them. But the one from you know 2007 is not going to really help in 2016 because the gonococcal treatment guidelines have changed significantly. So try to download the app. The way you should do it in, in the App Store, let me just tell you, search STD treatment. Don't search CDC STD treatment. Don't ask me why, it just comes up. Um, and it's the free one. And actually the version 2.0 is actually quite good. Uh, most of my fellows and residents love it. Of course, they're more tech enabled than many of us. But um, nonetheless, people say it's really good and I have occasion to use it many times for the herpes drug treatment. Here is just a reminder that we use penicillin, a lot of penicillin to treat all forms of syphilis. And what matters is if you want to do the mop-up with treponemes that we think are not replicating as quickly. That's the purpose of the second, third doses of benzamine penicillin. There might be a few, and syphilis experts like Ned Hook still say, you know, you should consider this. And I definitely listen to Ned Hook when he speaks on this topic. He has far greater experience than I do. So, so um, for example, if you treat your neuroocular syphilis patient, do you do a chaser of an additional one week of benzathine penicillin? Many of us will go do that for the mom of the possibility that the replicating treponemes have slowed their process. Again, theoretical. Right. I don't have too much more to say in terms of the teaching point of this slide, which is penicillin, penicillin, penicillin different forms of penicillin for different stages. The IV form, we just ran into a small battle with a Vermont provider, who is an ID clinician, who shall remain nameless, um, who um, 
was not ever really taught specifically, so I'll be explicit about this, benzathine penicillin does not achieve trepanemocidal levels within the CNS. So it is not used for CNS or ocular syphilis for a reason. It doesn't get trepanemocidal levels in those privileged areas. So please use the aqueous crystalline PEMG. And we should not be in shortage anymore. Are you guys still experiencing shortage? No? Okay, good. All right. Hopefully you never really had a shortage. Or you got to the point where you were like, okay, just for the rheumatic fever patients and the syphilis patients, but and the pregnant women. Listen to this. All right. Last few slides on treatment. It gets quicker as we go. Um, these are the data on penicillin usage in HIV co-infected individuals. So I was really honing in on like what literature is there specifically in HIV infected individuals. And it turns out to review that literature is really easy. Because first of all, Leah Blank wrote a very nice review of it with Khalil Ghanem, who was her mentor at the time. And uh, it was uh, early syphilis, late latent syphilis, neurosyphilis. Basically, penicillin is no worse than anything else. And in an HIV co-infected patient, we don't know that they do worse, so we're not going to treat them for longer. It's a bacterial infection in HIV. Bacterial infections don't tend to be treated for longer um, in HIV. <coughs> All right, so the paper that I really want you to see <coughs> is the Gonison paper, 2015, syphilis and HIV. They examined the efficacy of that single dose in a US military HIV natural history study cohort. Most of these patients were heart well-controlled. CD4 mean 494. We do not know why some of the military clinicians chose. They did not do the level of chart review that would be necessary to determine why. It was not a prospective, um, randomized process. Uh, it was a retrospective case review. So for all its failings, let me tell you the bottom line is basically that older age was associated with delayed response to treatment and higher pretreatment titers and a higher CD4 count was associated with a faster response to treatment on serology. It is a really useful paper to stare at the table of serologic response and realize in those that got one dose, and again, were very well controlled in terms of their HIV, a number of them did not have that nice fourfold decline, 8% of them did not, um, at 12 months. And remember, you get up until 24 months to fail to get that fourfold decline. That was what was required. The seroconversions arm, that outcome, they were looking for their RPR to go to nil. And many of these patients, the RPR never went to nil. They may have fourfold decline, but they didn't go to nil. So that serofast state in HIV-infected individuals, definitely true. So really nice study for a number of the tables and the predictors, I think, in a cohort of individuals it's very similar to what we follow in this day and age. Try to take a look at that one. All right, last treatment conundrum. Severe penicillin allergy in that 18-year-old. What are you going to do? You're in the hospital setting, so maybe you have an out. What are you just shouting out? Want to desensitize it? Or are you going to give him doxy? I think it's a harder question if it's uh, neurosyphilis, but for yep. uh, primary or secondary, I think I would just go doxy. Go doxy. And you'd, you'd like really try to check in with him to make sure he's compliant? Yeah, most of us would. Okay, but what are the data? Uh, they're terrible. <laughs> there are very little literature published. 
20 total cases where they use doxy. But Khalil basically says in the ST treatment guidelines, we have no reason to believe that it should fail. So we will go ahead and use it. Um, Ceftriaxone is probably the most interesting thing in the mix, right? A certain number of people who are allergic to penicillin, it's that haptin on the penicillin, not their cephalosporin cousins. So we hope we can get away with it. And certainly for neuro, as you pointed out, that would be a good thing to do. All right, last point. Syphilis, follow up an HIV positive. Just because we want to make you clinicians who are ID docs even more nervous, we do it more frequently. We follow them quarterly. We don't follow them every six months. If you tap somebody and they had an abnormal tap, definitely continue to tap them. Good luck with getting your patient to comply, to come in every six months or so. And if it's not normal by two years, you should uh, retreat. And don't forget that the VDRL and the protein occur more slowly in terms of response, the drop-down, uh, compared to the white cell count, which should respond almost immediately to an effective treatment that gets into the CNS. And your parameters for when you quit or repeat treatment are based on serologic follow-up or CNS follow-up over time and are set in accordance with the stage that the patient was initially at. Follow-up in HIV negative, all patients should be tested for HIV co-infection. Just remember, um, the LP should be repeated if you had an abnormality. And you should consider PrEP for HIV. Partner management, don't forget your public health colleagues. And my final words of wisdom, main recommendation is follow them closely. And aggressive follow-up in syphilis HIV co-infection to catch any possibility of treatment failure or the odd, um, they are more likely to have the odder presentations even when well controlled on heart, arguably compared to their HIV negative counterparts who have straightforward symptoms. Um, the key references I've summed up in the very last, second to last slide. And here's my ruined hair <coughs> ice cream. Remember, in somebody who has syphilis, they could have co-infection with other STIs. So your screening technique should be every bodily orifice that could come in contact with infectious bodily fluids. So I don't care how you ask the sexual history or how you want to offer it to the patient. Many times now I bypass the do you do and go straight to the would you like screening for syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. It's recommended in young gay men in your age group if you're sexually active at the rectal, pharyngeal, and you can pee in a cup for me too. Would you like it? Great. That's great. Every three months, right? We're getting this more routinized. Maybe not so much a drill down in the sexual history that still makes some of us blush when we take it. Um, maybe not all of us. Uh, and the Maraschino cherry on top is the Q3 month high-risk gay men check-in for HIV, syphilis, and hep C. If they're hep C, if they're HIV positive, and no HIV again repeatedly if they're already HIV positive. So that's the blood work, the Maraschino cherry on top. All right. So triple dip, that swab, except it's not a swab for the urine anymore, or the erythrocyte. Pee in a cup, that is the best sample. Uh, first catch urine. Uh, it doesn't have to be morning catch, just first catch, not, not a clean catch. Got it? Ruined ice cream? <laughs> I mean, there's a, a, you know, that um, gelato place downtown. <laughs> <laughs> they have an outpost right by where I live, you know, Murano Gelato, uh, down, down in Newton. <laughs> So why is this also important? Well, you can catch a lot of people who are going to be very high risk for HIV acquisition in the near time event horizon. 
four years to HIV seroconversion if you have rectal chlamydia or gonorrhea, marker for unprotected anal intercourse, right? And hopefully you agree with me that we've managed to go through quite a few things. Epi, clinical presentation, testing paradigms, treatment-based, uh, evidence-based for treatment approaches, follow-up, few words on STI screening and MSM. Oh, you know what? I skipped one slide. And I think that's uh, basically it. How about more questions? It was good back and forth. Okay. Stick around for questions. I'm not in a rush to get uh, back back down south. <laughs> or shall we? Um, those of you who need to go to clinic, please go. Any questions about?